going to read from you a text of Scripture that's not what our sermon text is for an opening illustration to hopefully help us. It's a very common passage that you'd hear at Christmas time. It's Luke chapter 2. You don't have to turn there, just listen. Familiar words. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And then all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the... And that's the word that flipped my thinking about the Gospels. And there was no room for him in the... And most of you would hear in the English translations of most of your Bibles the word in... Or you might think hotel, motel. There was no room for him in the inn. The problem is, is this original word is used later in the same story in Luke's gospel. And Jesus is having a final meal before he dies. And he says, I want you to go prepare a meal for me and do it in the upper room. Same word for inn here. It's not a hotel or motel. There was no room for him in the upper room would be a much clearer, better, more helpful translation of a very common reading text at Christmas time. Why does that matter and why bring it up while we're studying Matthew's gospel in chapter 13? Because when that was unfolded to me five years ago at Embassy Church, when we first started as a church, there might be a few of you in the room that were at that service In December of 2013, we weren't even officially a church yet. And we were going through the whole Gospel of Luke, and we started at Christmas time in Luke chapters 1 and 2. And I remember studying this text and reading two books that have forever changed the way I view the Gospels and have radically shaped the way I'm going to preach this message in just a few minutes. The two books are Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes by Kenneth Bailey. That's the one I'd recommend if you want to do further studying on your own. Second one is called Jesus and the Victory of God. That one I would not necessarily recommend unless you have a very heavy appetite for big, long theological books that say way too many things and don't get to the point. But it's really good. One of the better theological books I've read in the last 10 years. Both of those books, reading at the same time, going through Luke's gospel, make not only this point here in the Luke narrative of Jesus' birth, that too much of tradition has been crammed into your understanding of the manger scene as Jesus is born. It is way more likely, not necessarily 100% positive, but it is way more likely that Jesus was in a house, not in a cave or not in some barn somewhere. The reason there's a manger is because every first century home would have had a garage as its lower first floor and then an upper room where you live, normally sleep, bedrooms. Because of the census, there was no room for them upstairs. So therefore, they were downstairs, more than likely, where they would have cleared out the animals. I mean, you could have had the animals. I'm not saying you have to throw your manger scenes away, but you might want to. Who thinks, if you're a woman, that you'd want to be giving birth next to some sort of farm animals? Only one of you are laughing at that? Like, seriously? 
You'd be like, get that out of the way. There's something big going on here. There is no timetable as to when she entered in to the town of Bethlehem. She could have been there for months and reacquainted with former friends. Her husband, Joseph, has family and relatives there. It does not mean that she walked in the city and everybody was like, oh, get away from here. You're a pregnant woman. There is so much read into that story. And at the bottom line, it really doesn't change some of the main points of the story, but is a helpful illustration. Because what's the bottom line of that story? Whether he was born in a cave, whether there were animals around, or he was in some sort of garage of a first century house, and they cleared out the animals, and there was lots of women helping and caring, and Joseph was kind of like, yeah, I'm not going to take care of that. Whatever the scenario is, Jesus was born in very humble circumstances. Luke chapter 2, verse 1, it says, In the days of Caesar Augustus, in the days of the king of the Roman Empire, there is this great census, and he's counting up all of his people to show how great and powerful he is. And in those days, in a small little garage, in a small town outside of Jerusalem, a new king is born, and he's placed inside of a feeding trough. Oh, the contrast in seven verses of the ways of the world and the ways of the kingdom of God. So why bring this up? Because that day I asked a question to our church, and that question has continued to somewhat haunt me in my reading of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first four books of the New Testament. The question is this. If it's not just possible, but likely, at least in my opinion, my reading and research, It's likely that we have missed it big time on the birth of Jesus. Like the birth of Jesus. Like significant details are just fabricated from tradition and not actually read the text. Read the text again sometime. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And notice how little the details are about all the things you see in Christmas celebrations. If it's possible, if not likely, that that's happened, in what other ways have we missed the story of Jesus? That's the question. So now turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13 is where we're going to pick up in our study that we have been going through for quite a long time. What does your bulletin say? This is sermon number... What? 49. We're almost to 50 messages. It's been going on for a while. We've taken little breaks here or there when we get to major section points. We're in a new section that we started last week, Matthew chapter 13. The book of Matthew is structured by five big teaching sections of Jesus. The first big teaching section is what you might know as the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. There is narrative and history before and after that about Jesus. Then there is the Sermon on the Mount. Then there after that section is another big teaching block, and that is called the Sermon on the Mission. That's what I've at least entitled it, and that's in Matthew chapter 10, and then you get some more stories, and then you have another big teaching section, and it's right here. We're in the middle of the five big teaching sections of Jesus, and this teaching section is all parables. So last week's message, if you didn't hear it, and I hardly ever say this, but I think I need to today. If you missed last week's message, you will not understand the next four weeks, and this message might be a little bit like, what in the world, really? But last week, I tried my best to introduce to you the topic of parables. It is a complex topic. It is not a, well, parables are just simple little stories. No, no, that is not parables at all. Listen to last week's message, and hopefully that will help if you want to keep studying. So I'm going to read the text for us. We're going to look at the parable of the sower, and we're going to hopefully apply what we learned last week to this week's message and have a lot of good fruit to come from it. No pun intended, there will be a lot of talk about seeds and harvest and fruit in this text. 
Matthew 13, page 818 in the Black Bibles. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9, and then I'm going to skip what we covered last week in verses 10 through 17, and then we're going to read Jesus' explanation of this parable called the Parable of the Sower. That's the title that we've given it to it in our English Bibles. Call it whatever you like, the Parable of the Farmer, the Parable of the Seed. Here it goes. Chapter 13, verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables. So pause. The setting is Jesus is in a boat. He sits down. Rabbis sit down when they teach, and people stand. It's the exact opposite of what's going on now. I'm going to stand up the whole time, and you're going to sit. Hopefully not fall asleep, but hey, if you do, this is a great spot to fall asleep in. God's word is coming over you, and it's hopefully going to be just you're being bathed with God's word, and you're sleeping and resting in Jesus, but you're going to sit, and I'm going to stand. So it's the other way around, and Jesus is in a boat, and he's seated, and they're standing on the beach, and more than likely, I think it's because that creates a natural amphitheater-like setting, and if you go and do this, you'll actually find that the water and the sound waves reverberating off of the water creates almost a sound system naturally. And so that's what most people kind of think is going on here in terms of it. There's some that might say it's a little bit more metaphorical, but let's just dive into Jesus' first parable. A sower, verse 3, went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And it's at this point you need to realize that Jesus is done. And what I tried to explain last week is that that's all he said. And to everybody listening to this, they're like, what in the world was that? I have no idea what just happened. And he just sat down in a boat and started talking about some guy farming, and then he got up and then he left. And that's what I tried to explain last week as, that's strange. So that's why in verse 10 it says, the disciples came and said, what are you doing? That's Phil's translation. It says, why do you speak to them in parables? It's a little bit of like, what's going on, Jesus? And he explains, and again, that's last week's message. Drop down to verse 18. He then explains to them the parable of the sower, and he says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, when anyone hears the word of of the kingdom, very key phrase, and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, that he has no root in himself but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He, hear, he indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty. In another 30. 
I'm going to give you the big idea right now of the sermon, and then we're going to look at three different points of this message to help kind of walk through this big idea. The big idea is this. The parable of the sower is first retelling the story of Israel. The parable of the sower is first retelling the story of Israel, and then in parentheses I would write, particularly return from exile. The parable of the sower is first retelling Israel's story, specifically or particularly the return from exile. Second, it is telling the story of Jesus and his ministry and how he is the fulfillment of Israel's story. Let me say that one more time. The parable of the sower is first retelling Israel's story, particularly the return from exile. And secondly, it is telling the story of Jesus and how he is the fulfillment of Israel's larger story. And then finally, it becomes a message for you and for me. So on the screen behind me, you should see the outline of the message. One, a story about Israel. Two, a story about Jesus. Three, a story for us. Mixing up this order really messes with the Bible and makes it a book about you first and not God. Let's take these one point at a time. First, a story about Israel. If I had to guess, I don't think I have personally in the last 20 plus years of being in church and being a Christian heard anybody really emphasize and preach this point on this text of Scripture. It would be my guess, regardless of how long you've been in the church, that this point has just went way over your head in the same way that the baby Jesus was born with a bunch of animals around her. It could be true, but it's more than likely not. In the same way, I want to have that spirit about the way I'm talking about this first point. It is more than likely this is what Jesus is doing in my understanding of the Gospels. He is retelling the story of Israel. Then he's talking about how he is the fulfillment of that, And then finally, it becomes this helpful illustration for us as we think about our lives. So, I want to prove this to you. I want to prove to you that I think this is what's going on. And I want to suggest that one of the biggest things that we're not thinking about when we're reading the parable of the sower is the rest of the Bible, just to put it simply. Like the first half of the Bible, the first two-thirds of the Bible, it's called the Old Testament. The word testament is a Latin word for covenant, So the old covenant, and then there's a new covenant, and that's how the Bible's divided. There's two-thirds of it. It's much longer. There's 39 books of the old covenant, and there's 27 books of the new covenant. And a lot of us don't know our old covenant very well, our Old Testament. And I'm saying that not just because I'm judging you all. I'm saying that, like, as a person that's studying the Bible in a very intense way, and my full-time job is to study the Bible, I still feel inadequate when I teach the Old Testament. I've been teaching it recently in an Old Testament survey class, and there are difficult sections of the Old Testament. And so my general assumption is that if this is not your full-time profession, then a lot of us, we're missing out. And therefore, we're missing huge keys and clues that when you open up the Gospels, you're like, oh, duh, that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. So, for example, what story comes to mind when you hear about seeds in a fourfold succession Well, one story could be the story of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 through 45. 
Let's just turn and read them because, again, of our ignorance of the Bible. We did recently go through Daniel, and that was not an accident or coincidence. That was me thinking and looking ahead. You guys are going to need to know Daniel and its context. But I'm going to read to you Daniel verses 31 to 45 in Daniel chapter 2. This is 738 in the Black Bibles. And hopefully help you see that something is going on here. So, Daniel is in exile. Exile means that he was kicked out of his land. He was kicked out of his land because his people and the whole nation had been sinful. Daniel is a prophet, a prophet of God, who has the ability to interpret dreams. The king of Babylon, the one who grabbed the people of Israel and pulled them out of their land and put them in their land, the land of Babylon, has a dream. And they find out that one of these Israelite boys, Daniel, knows how to interpret dreams. So he explains to him. And look at verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron clay broke the bronze, the silver, and the gold. All together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them can be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. There shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks it to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of those of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw with the iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix the one another in marriage. But they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days those kings, the God of heaven, will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, and the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. This dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Now, on the surface, again, this might seem like, why does this have anything to do with the parable of the sower? And there's a lot of connections. First, you have an idea of a fourfold dream and interpretation. You've got a chapter where somebody has a vision and it's parabolically talking about kingdoms and then it's interpreted. And then at the same time, all through chapter two, the only place you will find the word mystery is in this chapter of the Old Testament. 
The very same word that Jesus is going to use in Matthew chapter 13. The word mystery that he tells his disciples. Why do I speak in parables? Matthew 13 verse 11. To you it has been given to know the mystery or the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. At one level, the parable of the sower seems fairly easy to understand. Jesus explains it, doesn't he? He tells us that the sower is the preacher of the word. The seed is the kingdom, the proclamation of the kingdom. The word is being broadcast and spread out, but there's different responses, and they're represented by different kinds of soils. And so some have hard dirt. Some have hard soil. Some have thorns. Some have rocky seeds in it. And then eventually the hearer of the good soil receives the seed of the word and it multiplies and we just simply stop there and say, is that you? And it sounds so far so simple. But Daniel chapter 2 helps recall and interpret a dream similar to what we see in Matthew 13. A statue of four different materials, a stone cut without hands, breaking down the stone and grinding into powder. The stone then begins to grow into a mountain that then fills the whole earth. We're talking about kingdoms. We're doing it parabolically in a vision-like way. And as I mentioned, the textual connections between kingdom and mystery appear here in Daniel 2, which would make us think that something more could be going on. That's one hint. But then you might ask, Daniel 2 has nothing to do with seeds and harvest. And I would say that's true, but Jesus is using the image of sowing to explain the mystery of the kingdom because that is the common metaphor of the prophets. For the people that are in exile, that were displaced, they were planted in their country, they were pulled up and uprooted and pulled out of their country and living in a foreign land for a while, and the prophets spoke of a day when a remnant seed would be replanted in the nation of Israel. And when they're planted, then God would bring an abundant harvest. That is all over the place in Jeremiah and Isaiah and many other places, but those would be two huge emphasis of the word seed as return from exile and harvest language. Now, imagine you actually know the Old Testament, like really well. I think he's, Jesus is thinking, if you have ears to hear, you know what I'm saying. If you know your Bibles, that was more than just a farmer sowing seed. And then he explains the meaning of it. You realize there's more than just your individual receiving of God's word, and that's the end of the point. It's a story about the cosmic plan of God through the whole Bible that's being told and retold. It's the story about four different stages that then eventually lead to a final and fulfilled kingdom. And one other final hint that I would give you to explain, how can we know that this is what's going on? The parable of the tenants is another really good hint. That parable is not really debated very much, but if you read later in Matthew or in Mark, there is a suggestion then that the parable of the tenants is about these different prophets that are coming and they're the different um, farmers and prophets. And so the, the tenants are taking care of a farm field and then they realize, hey, there's, there's nothing here. And then they, they beat him up and then eventually they send their son and then he kills the son and everybody's like, oh, that's obviously talking about the succession of the prophets in the days of Israel that finally make its fulfillment in Jesus. This would be another good hint to say that Jesus is doing more in his parables than just telling you a little story about God's word coming into your life. 
He's telling a story about God's word sowing into the nation of Israel and bearing an abundant harvest. And that he is the final and last prophet that is going to be the final seed that's planted. So, that's kind of the big idea for point one, is that he is retelling the story of Israel. And I think with some of these clues, it might help you reshape and reform that idea. It's one of the reasons why I had Ryan read to us earlier Isaiah chapter 55 because that's another example of the prophet that's talking about a remnant that's called a seed and that his seed is his word and his word is going to accomplish its purpose and it will not fail. That's what Isaiah is about. Return from exile with the remnant seed who's going to have an abundant harvest. And so we need to understand and read the scriptures these ways. So you might be wondering, Okay, why does this matter for me? Now, I told you that we're going to eventually get to a lot of application to you toward the end, so you have to hold on for a minute, but let me sprinkle in a couple tidbits right now. For any of you that have ever watched any Avengers movie and then just watched Endgame, or for any of you that did watch it, this is not about whether you watched it or not. It's that there are 20-some movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. 20-some movies over the last, how many, 10, 15 years? And they are tying in all the stories when they have these bring all the stories together moment like Avengers Endgame or Infinity War last year. So regardless of whether you've watched them or not, this is the basic concept. Modern people today are eating this stuff up because they love to see when a storyteller takes a bunch of little stories and brings them together into one massive story. And any of you that watch the movies or you read certain books, I mentioned this in another genre last year when I said, Last year, I was, or a couple years ago, I was doing a reading plan, and I was reading all these different fiction and nonfiction books, and I read this book by C.S. Lewis in his Out of uh, the uh, Space Trilogy series, and I read book two before I read book one. I read Paralandra before I read Out of the Silent Planet. Similar to Avengers Endgame or reading C.S. Lewis books, like the first book comes first for a reason and sets up the story for when you get to book two. So I actually watched Avengers Endgame last week, and I watched it with a group of people that hadn't seen the previous movies, and the entire time I was like, hey, who's that? What's going on there? It's like, you're supposed to know. Like, you're supposed to watch the movies beforehand. That's what it's like reading the New Testament when you don't read Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah. So practical application for all of you. If you'd like to understand your Bible, at some point in your discipleship with Jesus, you need to devote time to read large chunks of the Bible, especially the Old Testament. You need to start committing. Now, a lot of us have been trained and taught in a lot of Protestant evangelical churches, much like this one, to read like a verse a day or a little devotional and kind of just chew and meditate. That is a wonderful practice to do. I'm talking about a different practice that you need to get the big story and not just a little tidbit of coffee cup verses or whatever is there to give you a little little pill for the day to get you through. You will miss what the pill is about, the little verse that's on the Christian artwork, if you don't understand the bigger story. So, in our discipleship to Jesus, that is one thing I would really highly encourage you to do. There is a popular uh, preacher right now in the Atlanta area who has just published a book, and he is encouraging Christians to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament that we don't need anymore. It's embarrassing. All we need is the New Testament, and all we need is Jesus. All we do need is Jesus, but we only get to understand Jesus if you first understand the Old Testament. So I say be done with any thought that says unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. 
It creates all kinds of problems for sermons like this one if we go to the parable of the sower and we have no context of the Old Testament. So that's point one. It is a story about Israel, and we need to read the whole Bible in order to see it this way. And the more you do, the more I think it will enlighten and open up the reading of the Gospels, as I mentioned it did for me five years ago. Number two, a story about Jesus. Now, what's going on here is Jesus is not just retelling Israel's story, but he is showing how Israel's story is coming to its climactic final conclusion with Jesus himself. In other words, you should read this in a Jesus-centered kind of way. Israel is now in the person and work and ministry of Jesus reaching its final promised prophetic goal, namely the coming of Jesus. You ever heard that passage in 2 Corinthians that says, all the promises find their yes and their amen in Jesus Christ? All of the story of Israel is coming to a final fountainhead in Jesus. So Jesus is saying a stupendous claim. He is implying that his own career and his kingdom announcement is the movement that all the prophets had been pointing toward. And if you fail to see how this would be very dangerous to do and why Jesus might need to speak in riddles, then you have forgotten that Jesus is doing his ministry when there is already a man who calls himself king of the Jews. His name is Herod. He is not too far away, and he does not want anybody threatening his throne. Therefore, he tells his disciples, I've got to speak in parables. I cannot just come out here and say, By the way, I'm the Messiah, I am the son of the living God, and I am the true king of the Jews. As soon as he says that, he dies. And if you're wondering, did he ever actually say that? He did, but it's later in the story, and as soon as he says it, he dies. Therefore, if he's going to keep living and spreading his message without dying, he needs to speak cryptically and in parables, and not very clearly. So that way there's Roman officials walking around like, I don't know who this Jesus guy is. People like him, but he just talks about farmers. And it's really weird. Or Jewish people that don't have ears to hear or don't want to accept what he's really saying. Like, no, I know what you're trying to do, Jesus, but I don't have ears to hear this. And so Jesus is talking about how he just like the nation of Israel, had prophet after prophet, like seeds being sown. He is sowing seed, and some are rejecting it because their ground is hard, their heart is hard, and they are not ready to receive it. Remember that point when I was reading the text? Look back at it again in Matthew 13. I said this is a key phrase. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, that's the key interpretive link to the whole thing. What is the, parables of the, the parable of the sower about? kingdom. Whose kingdom? God's kingdom that's going to be enthroning Jesus. That should put on different lenses on the way we read these texts. Jesus is spreading the word of the kingdom, and some people want nothing to do with it because Satan has plucked it up. He's then going around and preaching, and some start to get real excited because he's done some miracles, and then they like just drift off. Because persecution gets tough. It's not fun to go around with a guy that keeps saying things that make it sound like he's the real king of the Jews. And that's not going to be tolerated when there's already a king sitting on the throne that's calling himself the king of the Jews, and he's got military power behind him. And then there's others that hear the word of the kingdom, and they're like, well, I don't want to sacrifice that much. Maybe I'll just go home and bury my father. 
because, you know, priorities. And then there's those that are the disciples right around Jesus, and they have received the secrets of the kingdom. They have received Jesus, and they're all in. And the word's gone down deep, deeper than everything else. And they're following him wholeheartedly. And so those people, they have the kingdom of God in their midst and the king of glory looking at them in their face. This is a story about Jesus. We need to be careful to not read the Bible and put ourselves at the center. When we read the parable of the sower, one possible casualty we might mistake that we might make is to so individualistically read this that you start making up things like, well, seems like you can lose your salvation because the seed goes in, seemed like they were a Christian, and then all of a sudden, well, not a Christian anymore. Not following Jesus anymore. And friends, this does happen. Did we not hear this morning downstairs, for those of you that gathered, a testimony yet again of somebody that grew up in church, made an early profession of faith, prayed, Jesus, forgive me of my sin, thought, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm going to get baptized, got baptized, and then in their teenage years realized, I want nothing to do with Jesus at all. Sin seems more desirable, more pleasing. The pleasures of this world are so much greater than Jesus. And so they just completely walked away. Is our description of that, that the seed went in and therefore they lost their salvation? The seed came out. I mean, the experience sounds like the way you would describe it, but if this is fundamentally not about your just individual receiving of the story, but this is about the cosmic grand story and how they're abundant word goes down and it stays in deep and it produces an abundance, then we shouldn't be looking at our lives in each of one of these little seeds all the time. And we should think, no, this is about a bigger kingdom. And then we won't make the mistake of saying, well, it looks like you can lose your salvation. Christ is the point of the scripture. He is the point of this. Isn't it funny, if not ironic, not funny, no, no, it is ironic in a bad way, sad, that you can read the gospels and like miss Jesus if you make it all about you at the end of the day, if the sermon just sounds all about you and not about Jesus, then you've missed the point of the story. The point is about Jesus' kingdom is being established in your midst. The whole long-awaited promises are coming to fulfillment, and he is the seed that's going to produce an abundant harvest. He is the seed of the kingdom. So let's read our Bibles in a Christ-centered lens, and now let's apply this. Number three, this is a story for us. Even though it's not about our individual little seeds being received in our heart, that can be a helpful way at times to talk about, but it's where you take the metaphor too far is my point about how we would might lead to wrong conclusions of losing our salvation or something along those lines. But let me give you some examples of how this story can very powerfully, radically transform your life when you realize this is about the kingdom of Jesus. First, a story for us it tells us a story about a patient king. It's a story for you because the king who is the kingdom, who is the king of the kingdom of God is patient. If the story is retelling the story of Israel, it means that God is constantly going after his people and spreading his word and wanting for them to receive it and take root in their heart. And even when their hearts are so hard, he is patient and is persistent to come again and again until he makes sure the word goes down deep and bears an abundant harvest. This is where that Isaiah 55 
passage should make you exult in glory in the patience of God to make sure that, man, his ways are so different than our ways. His thoughts are so far and high above our ways. We live in a 21st century instant gratification society. Delayed gratification is the value of the kingdom of Jesus. Delayed, slow, patient gratification. If any of you have said, man, I became a Christian last week, and now I should be leading a church. I should be the most mature Christian. It doesn't work that way. The kingdom of God moves slow because God is patient, because he's dealing with sinners and people with broken human hearts that are hard. And even though he comes to you again and again and again, he's going to keep coming until eventually, hopefully, by God's grace, you would receive him. Do you know why Jesus has not returned and established the kingdom fully and finally? In the letters that Peter wrote, he said, because of God's patience, because he wishes that no one would perish, and he would like further opportunities for the seed to be sowed. We should exult and glory and have our hearts warmed that the God we're talking about loves the human race. He loves this world, and he is patient toward us. The parable of the sower teaches that patience. How patient are you with raising your children? Now, we should demand immediate obedience when we tell them to do something, but we should also know the sinfulness of our children's hearts and realize that a lot of times that doesn't work out so well. How patient are you with your own spiritual growth? Do you have higher expectations than are realistic for how long you've been a Christian? Are you patient with others in this church? And do you have an expectation that where that person's coming from and where they're at now is really great progress? Praise be to God. And instead of being like, well, they should be where I'm at. And now I'm going to look down on them and judge them. And I'm going to be very hypocritical and, and, and act like they should be moving at a quicker clip than I really even am. Are you patient with the growth of Embassy Church? Do you think that we should be in the thousands already? That Pastor Phil should be writing book deals about the fastest growing church in America? Or should we look around and say, we started with 20 people. This growth is very farm-like. Slow and steady. Deep roots over the course of a long time will make something last. Rather than something that blows up real big. And then in a couple years, it was not on a firm foundation and it falls apart. I am super encouraged by the growth that God has given Embassy Church. It seems the right kind of pace. We don't want to get thousands of people real quick and you don't even know each other anymore. Can't even shepherd and elder each other the way we're supposed to. But yet in God's kindness, people are coming to faith in Jesus, joining and locking arms with us. And this church is seeing kingdom-like patient growth. Second way this applies to you, the seed has power. The seed has power. I want you to meditate and think about the power of the seed. If you were to go out in your backyard later today and you were put in the ground, a piece of plastic, and then water it, and then do this, repeat and rinse, cycle again and again, and get frustrated that nothing's coming out of the ground, it is because you have missed the point of how this works. It has no power. It has no life. 
The word of the kingdom has power. It has life. Even though it might be small, even though it might seem insignificant, it gets down deep enough. It can be an unleashing power that you could never imagine. Do you remember in Paul, his letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 1? This is one of the longer books in the New Testament. You read in the first early chapter there, Paul lays out early on, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. The language there is very important. He doesn't say it has the power. He says it is the power. The seed of the kingdom is Jesus. It is the gospel. The word of the kingdom is the gospel message. Therefore, it has power. It contains in and of itself like the way a seed does. If it goes into the ground, it can produce an abundance of fruit. But it only has power, as our text says, as Jesus explains, if it goes down deep enough. Have you noticed the depth level issues for all three of the seeds that fail? It has power when it goes down deep enough. The first one doesn't go down deep at all. It gets quickly plucked up. The second one doesn't go down deep enough, and it has rocky soil, and so it just falls over. Wilts real quickly. The third one gets choked up because its roots don't go down deeper than the other weeds around it and has life. It gets choked. In order for the gospel to have power in your life, it needs to go down deep. Deeper than money. Deeper than your anxiety and your worries. Deeper than the world's view of sexuality. Deeper than our political conversations and discussions. Deeper than the past sins that leave you to feel all kinds of regret and pain. It's got to go down deeper than that. All the relationships that you can think of that need to be mended, the gospel seed, in order for those relationships to be restored and renewed, it's got to go down deeper. And this, my friends, is when the power is unleashed. Because there, in the deep ground of our hearts, it dies. Because ultimately, the power of the seed is its weakness, its death. Think with me for a second. A seed has no power when it sits by itself. But when it dies, he who wants to gain the world must lose their life. But he who wants to gain life must lose the world and die and follow Christ. This is why Sam was up here earlier and read for us John chapter 12. A grain of wheat must fall into the ground and die in order to produce a harvest. And so Jesus will fall into the ground and he will die and he will rise again and produce an abundant harvest and be the first fruit of the kingdom of heaven here on earth now. Therefore, my friends, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that if Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection power, then you, my friend, will be the, the final harvest of the abundant kingdom that will produce not 30, not 60, but over 100 times over. I know most of us aren't farmers. We live in the northwest suburbs of an urban area. In the farming illustration Jesus gives, eight times over would have been kind of your normal uh, crop you would have received at harvest time. Eight times over. This is hyperbole to the biggest degree of like, this seed will produce 30, 60. No, it'll produce 100. This is impossible. In humans' eyes. 
But what is impossible with man is possible with God. When the gospel comes into your heart, it will produce an abundant harvest of resurrection life that you could have never imagined or dreamed of. And that's why 1 Corinthians 15 says that our physical body will itself be a seed when we die and when we bury people into the ground. We should think at our funerals. They're in the ground, but they're a seed and there's power that's going to come out and raise them from the dead. That's our future inheritance. When we embrace our weakness and realize that at our weakest of point, what is the weakest thing you could possibly be in this earth? Dead. Like, can you get much weaker than being dead? No. So any fall effects of deadness, any decay from sin that leads to deadness, whether it's emotional, spiritual, physical, any weakness you feel is power to God because death leads to life in this kingdom. So now think about this completely different. Your weakest will be your strongest. The thing that you thought was going to be the worst part of your life, the biggest fear of your life, will actually be the greatest moment of your life. So no longer think that death will be your biggest fear. Death will be your greatest power. And there is now victory over death through our Lord Jesus Christ, who was the first seed to go into the ground, to die, rise again. And as many people have commemorated He rose again and ascended to heaven as the king of the kingdom on Ascension Day. This, my friends, is actually Ascension Sunday. The Sunday after Ascension Day, 40 days after Easter, where we commemorate Jesus rising from the grave, ascending to heaven, and sitting down on his throne. That's what the parable of the sower is pointing us toward. A king who reigns, who died, but that death was actually power. So think about your life. Think about the ways that you feel weak and you don't realize that God through his power will resurrect again and again in this life and then especially in the life to come. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise for the gospel message of Jesus. That this simple and often told story of the parable of the sower can hopefully bring new life into our hearts. We're asking God that we would receive, that we would hear, that we would understand your word today, and that you, God, would give us the spirit to break up our hard, tough soil and place down deep in our hearts a seed that has power to unleash resurrection power day after day after day in this life, an ultimate power from the dead in the life to come. Lord, I pray that we would have our eyes fixed upon Jesus today. As Colossians 3 says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Namely, set your mind on Christ, the one who has died, risen, and is now reigning at the Father's right hand. May we see that the King has come. He has fulfilled his promises. And he has established his kingdom here on this earth. And may we receive this word by faith and faith alone. In Christ's name, amen.